I mean, it doesn't matter you know, how normal electricity becomes a part of our daily lives, it's still a surprisingly complex marketplace. Welcome to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. Growing Impact explores cutting edge projects of researchers and scientists who are solving some of the world's most challenging energy and environmental issues. Each project has been funded through an innovative seed grant program that is facilitated through IEE. I'm your host, Kevin Sliman. Today on Growing Impact, we speak with Mohammed Raleigh Badisi, an assistant professor of law at Penn State Dickinson Law. We are speaking about his project of investigating energy contracts of sub-Saharan African countries in order to find ways to improve that country's efficiency or environmental impact from energy production. Welcome to Growing Impact. Today on our episode, we have Mohammed Raleigh Badisi, and we are speaking about his project, Mapping Legal Liability from Power Market Decarbonization Policies by African Governments. So welcome to the show, Mohammed. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited for this conversation. Let's talk about this project. As, as far as I can understand, it looks like these different countries, no matter what they would like to do, if they would like to try to head towards maybe something that is renewable or decarbonization or something like that, where their energy is becoming, they're trying to make their energy use more efficient or reducing pollution, that they're actually stuck and they're not able to make those changes. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. I mean, the, the the core problem is this, is that there's a big transition happening in the energy space. You know, solar and wind and all these new sources are coming online. There's the extra motivation, you know, of sort of counteracting climate change and decarbonization. So there's a lot of big new things that countries are trying to do. The trouble is, is that it's hard to walk away from the market you already have. They've already built a bunch of projects, maybe they're coal projects or, you know, hydro projects or, you know, even sometimes they're using diesel generators in a lot of these countries. And there's this problem where, you know, when they try to build the new and move in that direction, they have some legacy liabilities, what we'd say in the legal space from those old projects. So you can't just shut down a coal project because you don't like it anymore. Somebody built it, somebody paid for it, somebody's operating it. It's a business asset. Um, And in this transition, this energy transition that we're all, you know, focused on these days, somebody has to account for that existing asset. And more importantly, for these countries, they've got to be able to assess the liability of this transition because they might have a big bill waiting for them, a big cost in shutting down this old generation of infrastructure, even though everybody's super excited about the new generation of, you know, lower carbon and and green energy that's coming. So they have these agreements and they can be with anyone, right? They could be with a private contractor or an energy company that exists. Is that accurate? That's right. I mean, typically the way it is, especially in the emerging markets that I focus on, Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Southeast Asia, Central America, places like that, it's usually a a government-owned utility, right? a government-owned power company um, that contracted with an investor, usually a foreign investor, to come in and build a power plant. And then they would buy the power from that plant and they would sell it to their customers. And so, yes, it is usually what they call a project developer or, or some type of investor who's sitting on the other end of this transaction that's sitting there on the other end of the contract. What is your project aiming to do? What goals do you have for your project? Well, I mean, it's in some ways, it's pretty simple. What it is, is we're trying to look at those contracts. We're, we're trying to look at the project contracts that have been signed in, you know, a, sort of a subsection of countries that we're, we're sampling from over the last two or three decades to figure out what is the language in those contracts that allows for either renegotiation or possibly even termination. Another way to say that, just in sort of plain speak, is what would it cost to get out of those projects? Mm-hmm. What would it cost to walk away? 
from those projects. And um, as you can imagine, when you're negotiating a deal, you're not sitting there obsessing with shutting the thing down. You're thinking about the great future of, you know, setting it up and running it for 30 years and how everybody's going to be happy with more electricity, you know, from coal or whatever the source may be. But now the trouble is, is when you do this backward looking exercise, you find that a lot of these agreements don't have a lot of detail. And, and so we're trying to examine either directly or, you know, implicitly, if there's not clear language in the contract, so what options the governments have and trying to unwind some of these old projects. And if we can do a good job of that, if we can capture uh, sort of a pretty good understanding of what it would take to walk away, then we give the government some choices, right? You could you can buy out the project. You could maybe just deprioritize it, let it sort of live out its days, but you're just not using the power uh, anymore. You could convert it. You can, and there's sort of different choices in that space. But right now, the governments don't even know what those choices are. A lot of them don't even. A lot of them haven't even read their own contracts because they were signed 20 years ago by some past administration. Are we talking primarily in? Did you say sub-Saharan Africa? That's a big part of the focus, you know, for for our research, just because in my own, uh, you know, background, I've done a lot of my uh, work with sub-Saharan African governments, and I work directly with a lot of governments there. But I think really any market that has experienced rapid growth, uh, but still is primarily what we call state controlled, where there's still a lot of state ownership of the infrastructure. And so that sub-Saharan Africa is a big example of that. But places like India and Nepal and South Asia or Vietnam and um, and even Malaysia, places like that in Southeast Asia. There are, exper- there are examples all around the world, but I think the governments that are most in danger of facing this big liability are governments in Sub-Saharan Africa, particularly East and West Africa. Interesting. Is there any reason why East and West Africa are more in danger or? Well, I mean, it's because there are still some of the more underdeveloped markets. Um, some of the bigger markets like South Africa, which is a, a sort of a pretty modern economy. It's, it's a middle income country at this point. They've got a big enough power market where if one project sort of goes offline or more importantly, you know, there's a shift in the market. There's enough capacity there. There's enough scale in the marketplace that it's not disruptive. Right. But if you're in a smaller country, think of, you know, a country like Malawi or, or Burundi or even, you know, a, a sizable country, but it still doesn't have a fully developed uh, energy market like Kenya. The transition away from the old generation of power to the new is pretty disruptive, right? You're talking about taking a big chunk uh, of your existing power projects possibly offline. Uh, and more importantly, the bill, the cost possibly of this transition is is sort of proportionally higher compared to your GDP than it would be in a larger economy and a more advanced economy. In, here in the US, we're facing the same problem, right? It's not like this is a unique situation in Sub-Saharan Africa. We've got a whole generation of coal power plants that we all know need to shut down sometime soon, uh, are either because they're too dirty or actually, frankly, they're too expensive. I mean, new sources of energy like solar are just becoming so much cheaper, but we can't just shut them down. It's a business, they've got rights. So we have an economy here where we can realistically think about, well, what if we bought out the coal project, right? Over the, We buy it out right now and over the next 20 years, we add just a little bit of payments to everybody's power bill to pay back the cost of that project that we had to buy out. Uh, we call that coal securitization. That's sort of the, the legal word for it here in the US. And that's a very realistic thing. We can do that because we've got enough customers, we've got enough power you know, flowing, enough you know, size in our market that that little tiny payment on your bill isn't gonna be a major problem you know, to a US customer. But again, proportionally to a Kenyan customer or a customer in Ghana or elsewhere, that may be a significant charge. That may be a significant liability where that option isn't really there. You can't just buy out the project because they just can't afford to, again, relative uh, to, the, to the customer's ability to pay. Could you talk to me a little bit about the interdisciplinary aspect of this? 
by its very nature, anything that's sort of a power sector or energy related is interdisciplinary. I mean, I'm focused on the law and the regulation and the finance, and that's sort of my background. But power itself is a sort of a technical challenge. The idea of actually building, operating, and delivering this this commodity again, you know, getting the electrons to flow down the wires. And so the complexity of the power projects, uh, I work with some very smart engineers and other project developers who sort of explain to me why it's so hard to say even redesign, say a coal facility to make it greener or, you know, that kind of a challenge. And then on the climate side too, you know, there's a there's some really hard math that you have to do here and sort of climate economists, but also, you know, uh, sort of climate experts on the, the the weather side, folks are predicting just how disruptive some of these climate adjustments will be. The math is like this, for these governments that are thinking, well, do I shut down these old dirty projects or, you know, do I focus on sort of these newer greener projects? The math goes like this. They have to think about, well, what is the actual cost of climate change, right? If I keep running this power plant, what is the real cost in terms of, you know, maybe it's increased cases of asthma of folks nearby, increased weather events, volatility, you know, maybe my crops, you know, become more unpredictable. And it's twisted, but it's true. I mean, to the extent it actually might be cheaper to keep running these plants if it's going to cost so much to shut them down, even though knowing full well that all these bad things are going to happen. And so there's some very interesting financial and economic analysis that has to be done in there. And it takes into account some social costs and some sort of macro and micro level uh, issues that are well beyond my capacity. So I, I rely very heavily uh, on smart economists uh, and folks who have the, the technical understanding about the project and, and sort of the, the climate level at the end of the day. I, I really love working with the governments that I work with because I know that they're in need of this information. They want to make smarter, informed decisions. That, that's my favorite counterpart. But I really enjoy the community of experts as well. Even the students I have who are helping me with this research, I think they've grown their knowledge and they've made me think through some issues that I hadn't thought there before. So that kind of interaction is invaluable at the end of the day. Mohammed says he has to sometimes remind himself of the interconnectedness of the research outcomes at a university like Penn State. We have amazing people doing research on climate science and sort of the, the future, you know, of what the earth looks like, you know, the next 10, 15, 100 years, mm-hmm. right? We got brilliant people doing work on energy market regulation and economics, sort of the center, you know, that's for energy law and policy, doing great stuff there. We got smart people doing work on the solar panels themselves, right? How do we build solar panels? I, I find it's funny. One of the luxuries we, ha- we have as lawyers is we think about the sort of the contract level where everything comes together as opposed to the individual components, the panels, the market, you know, the weather. Uh, and I, I have to sometimes nudge my colleagues, I think, you know, another and other interdisciplinary spaces to, to think about, you know, how their particular research or their particular knowledge could have a heavy impact, uh, you know, on, on others. And so uh, I, I like that we've built now this culture at the university around energy issues, the energy university sort of banner that, uh, you know, the, the president has put out for us. Mm-hmm. We've got all these working groups. For example, we, got a, we have a solar uh, working group that I've been a part of. And so that part's been nice, but I think it's rather nascent. I'm, I'm excited to see that grow because the interconnected nature um, again, I'm used to these regulated markets, but it, it applies to other spaces too, uh, is such that we would be irresponsible if we weren't doing more interdisciplinary research, if we weren't thinking through all the various implications of some of these you know, really innovative you know, insights that we're generating from our research. For me personally, and one of the reasons I was excited to, to even just join academia, but Penn State in particular, is there's a certain credibility that comes from being in a public university Um, That's really important to the governments that I work with, which is to say that they know we're not trying to push a technology or push a project or profit from anything, right? 
Um, it's not even that, you know, we we're ne- we have like alumni who are on the, you know, in, in the, the back country of Kenya trying to pitch projects. It, there's a tremendous value in the trust that is placed in public universities, the credibility that we have. Um, and it's helpful to me because these governments are being bombarded with all kinds of information from the investors saying, oh, this is your best way forward, you know, from certain think tanks and other advocates saying, you know, you got to pick this pathway to mitigate, you know, climate change. And it's hard. It's very, very hard for those governments. It's not a lack of information. It's a lack of credible information that's a struggle uh, for some of these these governments. And so I I find myself being very thankful for the, the place that I sit because, you know, when I walk into a conversation, you know, with my, with my Penn State, you know, hat on, I come into there as a trusted party. Uh, And that's really, really important, especially when you're dealing with governments in some of these emerging markets. Thank you for listening to Growing Impact. Today, we spoke with Mohamed Rali Badisi and his project, Mapping Legal Liability from Power Market Decarbonization Policies by African Governments. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. This this is why we do the work, to be able to, to share with others. You've been listening to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. I've been your host, Kevin Sliman. This has been Season 1, Episode 4. Thank you for listening.